Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. Beth Emanuel teaches Messianic Judaism for all nations, and we would like to be your long-distance congregation. If you listen regularly at BethEmmanuel.org, consider supporting us with regular financial gifts and become a virtual member. Click on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org to learn more. So it happened that on the third day after the death of the Master, that his disciples were beginning to disperse already, and two of them were already heading home. You know the story. Even though the Feast of Passover was still going on and had another, oh, four days or so left, these guys had already thrown in the towel, so to speak, and left Jerusalem in dejection. They were heading back to Emmaus. When a stranger met them on the road, engaged them in conversation, and seeing that these men were sad and disconsolate, the stranger asked them about the reason for their sorrow and why they're feeling so badly, and they explained that they were disciples of Jesus the Nazarene, Yeshua of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, they explained. But their teacher had been arrested, sentenced to death, and crucified. They explained... We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Nothing is, is so painful, I think, as misplaced hope. Disappointment. You've heard it said, don't get your hopes up. Yeshua had raised their expectations very high. Before Yeshua, I think these guys were just normal guys and they weren't expecting much. Like normal guys, normal guys don't expect much. They're expecting to live their lives, raise their families, and perhaps with luck, grow old and die. But when Yeshua came into their lives, they totally disrupted things and turned things over. He raised their expectation and suddenly they were whisked, they were whisked into this world of incredible hope, miraculous events and, and a dazzling, a dazzling future. They believed that their teacher was going to redeem Israel, meaning that they believed that he was the promised Messiah who would restore the throne of David and usher in the kingdom of God on earth. Big stuff. Those are huge dreams. And as it is written, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. The bigger your dreams, the harder they fall. The higher your hopes, the further they fall. I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember when you were young and you planned on being a famous athlete? When you plan on being a professional ball player, what do you want to be when you get big? Well, I think I'll be a millionaire. What happened to that dream? Whatever happened, what, whatever happened, look at yourself, would you? I'll tell you what happened. You grew up. And a part of growing up is learning not to, not, not to dream ridiculous dreams. Part of growing up is learning not to hope for the impossible but to just deal with the hand that you've been dealt. Or how about this dream? When I grow up, I'm going to marry a handsome prince who will love me absolutely, and we will live happily ever after. Or alternatively, a beautiful princess, as the case may be. But marrying the handsome prince and the beautiful princess itself might not be the most difficult part. The thing that we seem to have the most trouble with is the happily ever after. That's the part people struggle with. 
And when, when marriage ends or, or, or perhaps, perhaps ending in divorce and, and bitterness or, or, or something like that, God forbid, one might think, you know, it would have been better to have not loved than to have loved and lost. It is better to have not hoped, you would think, than to have hoped and had one's hopes disappointed. The message of the gospel, however, is a message of hope. And if you're hopeless, or you feel hopeless, then the gospel cannot really take root in you. The Israelites, give us an example, they had once dared to hope. Their lives were hopeless. They were slaves, brick makers. And if you couldn't get a job as a brick maker, you could be a mortar maker. They were building Pharaoh's cities, building temples for pagan gods. Then Moses shows up, and he's peddling this snake oil called hope. Moses says to them, God has sent me to take you out of Egypt. And he shows them some signs and wonders in order to convince them. And they were convinced. And, and they, they took this, this step of faith, daring to hope. They had this great hope that perhaps God was real after all the God of their fathers. Perhaps he cared about them. You see, what had happened, they went from being just miserable slaves to being miserable slaves with a great hope because Moses raised their expectation of living. But when Moses went to Pharaoh to deliver this message to Pharaoh, Pharaoh responded by increasing the workload of the slaves and making their lives even worse than they were before. And that hope that Moses had brought turned to disappointment. So the Israelites said to Moses, we read this in Exodus 5.21, it says, They said to them, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. In other words... How dare you come in here, start shaking your hope around? Don't you see that our situation is cruel? The way we are, this is just, it's cruel to make us, to give us this false hope and then dash it to the ground. So Moses brings this complaint to God. God says, tell him I'm going to rescue them. Moses goes back to the people and says, no, 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 it's still good. God's going to rescue you. And Exodus 6, 9 says, So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. Sometimes in life, we don't listen. It's hard to listen. It's hard to listen to hope. Because of our despondency, having dared to once hope, having dared to hope in the past, and having been hurt, having been disappointed, betrayed by that hope, we resolve not to be hurt again. And one way to, ever, to, to avoid ever being hurt again is to refuse to hope again. And, and this, is, this is really the pessimist. Why is the pessimist so pessimistic? 
Because the pessimist is actually afraid of hope. You all know someone like this. You say, I think it's going to be a beautiful day, he says. It's probably going to rain. Or if it's a drought, you say, it looks like rain. He says, I think it's going to clear up. <laughs> what is, what's the deal with that? You know people like this. I see, you know, in Jewish superstition, there's a concept of evil eye which, which always defers a positive or positive statement uh, away, deflects it, lest it incites some jinx upon a good situation. So if you would say to one of these old Jewish grandmothers, oh, your grandson is so cute, so darling, she'd immediately respond, ah, his nose is too big, his ears stick out. Why? Well, she's protecting his cuteness. She's protecting him. She's protecting the cuteness of, his, of this grandchild because she believes that if, if you should hope, if you should, should say something nice and enjoy something, you've raised your expectation too high and, and then, you know, fate is out there and it's going to slap you down. It invites disappointment. So saying he's cute is as good as cursing him to a life of homeliness. Being a professional pessimist myself, I know this racket from the inside. You put in an application for a job and then immediately start prepping yourself for the bad news. Someone else, probably better qualified, probably applied ahead of me. Even if they look at mine, I won't qualify for the position. It isn't going to happen. Why would something good happen? Why do we do that? Because we're afraid of hoping. This is called being a realist. <laughs> but it's actually not reality, it's actually despair. The attitude is, I am comfortable in my current despondent state, so please don't raise me out of this state because I can't stand being, chi be be being, teased, being teased with the, the chance of, of happiness. I'd rather be unhappy, thank you very much, than take the risk of being disappointed. You familiar with this? Because this was the situation at the Red Sea on the seventh day of Passover. Turn to Exodus chapter 14. Beginning in verse 9. It says, Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen, and his army. And they overtook them camping by the sea beside, beside Pihahirot in front of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You see, their hopes are dashed. They thought they were free. Long gone. They thought they were free escaped, but now they realize that it's just an illusion. Reality has caught up with them, and it's on wheels. 
Their dreams of a new life are crashing to the ground before their very eyes. And it's, it's worse. Now it's, things are worse than if they had just stayed in Egypt. Why is it worse? Because at least in Egypt, they knew what to expect. A life of slavery, hard labor, bitterness, and oppression. But at least it was the familiar routine. And at least it was a life. But this, what's the point of this? It's the point of a spear. Moses had them going for a while. They really thought he had pulled this thing off. They had been hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. I think this is kind of a common sort of experience in life and faith. I was talking to the, the teens last week about, about this, this whole phenomenon and, and just felt like, this is maybe a message that we all need to hear. You know, when you see your prayers answered and it's like, it's like I prayed it and God did this incredible thing. It's like the, you know, he, he just like, he answered my prayer. That's like the sun bursting through the clouds and, and you think, well, this is fabulous. And things are going to be totally different. But then maybe a short time later, after that prayer was answered for you, you realized, wow, things are like totally the same again. Do you remember that? I think you probably do. I'm talking about a whole variety of situations, all situations, where you thought that, maybe you thought that God had restored your health and had miraculously healed you, but dang, if a few weeks later you weren't worse than before. Or where you thought that God had restored your relationship with your father, your mother, your wife, husband, son, daughter, whatever, fill in the blank. And for a little while it did seem like things were better, but now look at it, would you? Or you thought that God had given you strength, the fortitude to finally conquer that particular temptation and that you had been set free from the snare of Satan and would never be enslaved by that again, but look at you now, caught in the same old habits. Like the proverb that says, a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool to its folly. So I, I know that one way or another I'm going to touch on some things here. I'm touching on some things because this is, this is the human experience. And there may have been times in your life when, when the hope you hoped in life was really a false hope, when it was really a deception and it really wasn't going anywhere, like the time you were going to get rich in a multi-level marketing scheme. Or, or maybe the time that some well-meaning but misguided faith healer had laid hands on you and told you that just all you need to do is believe and that if you just believed, you would be healed. That happens too with the same results. And those results being the fear of hope itself. Now for Israel... They had feared to hope. But Moses had overcome that and convinced them. And for a while he had led them and he had sustained that hope, fueling it until they actually believed that they were saved. But now, facing Pharaoh's advancing army, they know better. And hope turns to hopelessness and to bitterness. Bitterness against Moses, which is really bitterness against God. It's like the old saying. It's always darkest just before the moment when things go totally black. What do you do when you find yourself in that situation? 
where it hurts too much to dare to hope again. Here's what Moses says in verse 13 of Exodus 14. It says, But Moses said to the people, Do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you'll never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. There's great advice. So, so, so this is what it is. It's like they're saying, uh, Moses, um, they're coming straight for us with chariots and spears. What should we do? Moses says, Stand still. <laughs> Stand still. <laughs> Stand by. <laughs> That's what he says. Stand still. And you'll see the salvation of God. It's not, not the answer they were looking for. It's not an easy answer. When you are in despair and want to give up because your hopes have been disappointed again and you're ready to throw in the towel, Moses says the solution is to stand still. Or, as the New American Standard Version translates it, stand by. Stand by. That reminds me of when I was a kid watching TV and it would go all fuzzy and the TV station would put up this screen that said something like, please stand by. We are experiencing technical difficulties. You know, you know is that your answer, Moses? <laughs> this is a technical difficulty? <laughs> I'll say it's a technical difficulty. <laughs> We're pinned in by the sea and these Egyptians are planning to make shish kebabs out of us. Here's another technical difficulty. The disciples gave up their lives, their homes, their families, their careers to follow a would-be Messiah around for three years, but instead of turning out to be the Messiah, a few days after he rides into Jerusalem, ostensibly to take back David's throne, he goes and gets crucified. That's a technical difficulty. Please stand by. When I was in college, I once had a professor who was lecturing about a certain class of people, a class of achievers that he called the water walkers. Who are the water walkers? The water walkers, he explained, are the super competent, seemingly lucky people who seem to achieve success in everything they do. And it's corporate jargon. It's, 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 a, it's language that's used in the corporate world to describe someone who just seems to rise through the ranks effortlessly and, and can just, uh, just has that Midas touch. So this pr professor is presenting a lecture on a study of water walkers. Mainly, mainly uh, namely, what made a water walker a water walker? And there's lots of things that the studies have found, a combination of things, but two that stay with me are that the water walkers were unique and unlike their colleagues in, in, in two main regards. One, that they were confident. Regardless of the odds, they had confidence. And the other thing was that they learned from their mistakes, that they didn't just keep repeating the same mistake over and over. And it turned out that in measuring them and studying them, it turned out that they actually had the same setbacks and failures that everyone else did. But they met those failures with a kind of resolve that comes from this certain confidence. And when the failing was on their part, they corrected it. And they didn't repeat that same mistake. And this, is, this made all the difference. 
We need confidence. Where does, you know, where, where does confidence come from in, in matters of faith? In matters of faith, confidence comes from knowing, knowing God. And know, knowing that God is trustworthy. That knowing that God is actually on your side. He's for you and not against you. And that He's concerned for you like a father is concerned for his son or for his daughter. Like a good father. So regardless of what disappointments life might dish out and regardless of how often How often you are told, stand by. You know that standing by means standing in confidence because you know the character of God, that He's a God who, who very often does these unexpected reversals. He suddenly brings these unexpected salvations. But here's the thing, even if He does not, He's good. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the ovens. They say, yeah, our God can rescue us from this. But even if He doesn't, we're still faithful. He's good. And as it says in the story of the Exodus, He is concerned about His people. And how do you know all this about God? Well, you know this from the Torah. This is what the Torah is about, to teach us who God is. Moses says, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. I wish I could learn this verse. I mean, it would be easy to memorize, but I wish I could learn the verse. It's hard to stay silent. When you see things happening around you that are not going your way, or when you're wronged, or when you're insulted, or disappointed by someone, you know that passage in the Sudur that says, let my soul be like dust to those who curse me. Let my soul be like dust to everyone. The temptation is to make a lot of noise. To either complain about the unfairness or to try to manipulate the outcomes by getting busy and making lots of noise, spreading your opinion, spreading your perspective on the situation. But if it's God we trust in, then we should keep silent. Verse 15, it says, then the Lord responds. He says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, divide it, and the sons of Israel shall go through the, the midst of the sea on dry land. You may say, well, isn't that a contradiction? Because Moses says, stand still. God says, go forward. Who are we to believe here? Moses told them, stand still, as in, don't run away. As in, don't give up. Don't give up hope. God tells them to go forward in faith, in confidence. To take a step of confidence, a step of faith, a leap of faith. Despite all contrary evidence and all contrary voice, voices that, that, that they were hearing, God told them to dare to hope again. 
Once it happened that there was a great storm out on the Sea of Galilee, a great wind on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples were straining against the oars and they could not move forward all night when they saw the Master come walking to them on the waves. And here he was, a real water walker. And, and it says, uh, he said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Yeshua. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Yeshua stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, You have little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind stopped. So what happened to Peter there? He lost confidence, you know? He began to sink. To be a water walker, to be successful in realizing the hope that God has planted within us, we have to maintain confidence in God despite the wind and the waves. The wind and the waves are real. They really are there. It's not a matter of just saying, I don't see the wind and the waves. The wind and the waves don't exist. I don't believe in wind and waves. The wind and waves are there. And you will sink. So where do you find confidence in the story like that? Don't you find yourself saying, like, Oh, Peter, if only you hadn't doubted. You, you wouldn't have sunk. You'd probably still be walking around in the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> That's not a good place to find confidence because we all doubt at times. And we do sink. So here's where I find confidence in that story, that when Peter cried out, Lord, save me, the Master stretched out his hand and took hold of him. That's confidence. That's a place for confidence. In the Song at the Sea, in Exodus 15:8, it says, At a blast from your nostrils the waters were piled up, the flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. What does it mean, the deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea? There's something kind of novel in the Middle East, but as I drove across the St. Croix River, I could see that the St. Croix had congealed. Rashi explains that the deepest part of the sea turned solid like a rock. So, if that's the case, then in Exodus 15, all Israel become water walkers. And hopelessness turned back to hope and salvation for them. And so when the two, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus suddenly realize that it was the Master, the risen Yeshua, speaking with them all along, their despondency, which they had been expressing to him, turned to joy. And they hurried back to Jerusalem and passed through her gates in joy and unquenchable hope. God is the God of salvation. So as a believer, you cannot responsibly lose hope. You always have hope. A mother of young children, hypothetically, God forbid, finds a lump. She's scared. But she cries out to God, so she has hope. Hope that it's not 
cancer, hope that it's not a tumor, because she has confidence in God. As it turns out, <clears throat> hypothetically, God forbid, it turns out to be a tumor, and it turns out to be malignant. So does she despair? You know, think of the children. She might, and, and that's, that's natural, that's okay. I mean, she might. The disappointment is natural. But even past that, she is a believer and she still has hope. Because God is still God, she is still his daughter, and she prays, she prays that it hasn't spread and has hope that they've caught it in time. And she remembers the story of, the stories of the master and his healing hands. And so when she gets the results back from the doctor and it turns out that it has spread, again, disappointment. But despair? No, not despair. Because she has hope. She knows that now she's in for a nightmare and her dreams are falling apart, but even this nightmare, in this nightmare, she knows she will not be alone and she will have hope because she has confidence in the goodness of her Father in Heaven that He will support her, He will sustain her, He will carry her. He says, please stand by. Stand still. And you will see the salvation of God. How does this story end? You know, I don't know. You know, hopefully it ends... With, with God opening up the sea and delivering her and miraculously healing her and she's reunited with her dreams and with her children and with her husband and that is certainly a potential ending and a good ending to the story and that is one reason that we never lose hope because God can always reverse the, 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 reverse the situation despite all expectations but perhaps the story has a different ending perhaps after a long course of painful treatment and many fervent prayers and even the prayers of the precious prayers of her own young children, she comes to a painful end of the story, closes her eyes in the frailty of her body, overcome with weariness, she slips away from her husband and from her children and passes into oblivion. Now what has become of your hope and your quiet confidence? Now she walks on the path of souls and stretches out a hand to touch the mezuzah on the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem. And those great gates of precious stone open like the waters of the Red Sea and she enters into the midst of the living where hope is finally realized and there is no more disappointment because one is waiting for her there, the very one she has known Yeshua the Son, and He takes her in His healing hands and comforts her and tells her she will be reunited with those she left behind. I have, I have brought this hypothetical, horrible story, this horrible imaginary story to its worst possible place, its worst possible conclusion, where hope is again and again dashed by disappointment to show you that with God, in Yeshua, there is always hope. There is always confidence. And you cannot lose. This is how the disciples were able to face the difficult days to come after the resurrection. They were facing a lifetime of hardship persecutions, wars, trouble. 
ending in martyrdom. This is how they were able to go to their doom in confidence. Because they possessed an unquenchable certainty that no matter what happened, a peace that passes understanding that they could not lose. They could not lose because Yeshua had already won. When you know that you cannot lose, you have nothing to fear. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid to hope. And you don't need to be afraid to, that, that, well, I might be disappointed. Yeah, you might be disappointed. But you can't lose. You don't need to be a pessimist to protect yourself. You can afford to be an optimist. And we need more of those. Because God wants to raise your expectations. He wants you to dream again. He wants you to dream with Him this time. Not your own dreams, but shared dreams. He wants you to dream very big. He wants you to dream about fulfilling His will and purpose for your life. He wants you to get your hopes up. The message of the Gospel is, get your hopes up. Those disappointed Israelites who were hoping that Moses was going to redeem Israel, though they're their hope was disappointed. God reappointed their hope when He brought them safely through the sea, walking over the water, through the water. To be, to be a water walker, you need two things. You need confidence, and you need to be able to learn from your mistakes. Now, learning from your mistakes is a totally different matter. It's a totally different sermon. Another matter altogether. But you put these two things together. Learning from your mistakes and confidence. Put them into biblical language. What do, you, what do we call that? Learning from your mistakes. The Bible has a word for it. We call it repentance. Standing by, standing by in confidence. Please stand by. What is that? What is the Bible word for that? That's called faith. Repentance and faith. That's a persevering faith. That's a good word that seems to be slipping out of English, but we need to bring back. Perseverance. But this combination, repentance and faith, put them together and that's the very message of the Gospel. Repent, because the Kingdom of God is here. So those, you know, those two disciples, they, they had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. That's what they said to the stranger. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel and usher in the kingdom of God. And they were right. That's the punchline of the story. Their hope was not disappointed Neither will yours be. Please stand by. Take on my yoke And learn from it And find rest for your soul